We would like to take a brief moment to say a huge thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, especially some of our newer ones, like Corinne K. from Washuga, Washington, Christina N. from Katy, Texas, Natalie K. from Tucson, Arizona, Naomi C. from Centralia, Washington, and Cami D. from Salt Lake City, Utah. Thank you guys so much for your support, and we love you. So much. <laughs> kissy, kissy. <laughs> if you would like to hear your name said seductively or annoyingly on the show, you can sign up at patreon.com and just search for Murder in the Rain, where for as little as $5 a month, you will have all sorts of bonus episodes and content. Beautiful. You're such a professional. Where's that coming from? My butt. (laughs) This is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Two men breached the woods surrounding the cabin, their eyes keen as they surveilled the area. The cabin, which was more of a shack, was hand-built and about as basic as you can imagine. And it was situated about 45 miles north of the nearest sizable city. I'm into this. It's like the opening of a movie. It was the afternoon of Tuesday, June 24th, 1952, and the location is Oregon, at the southern edge of the Umpqua National Forest about 75 miles from the California border. The two were District Assistant Ranger Lowell Ash and State Trooper Phil Loud. Ash, of the High Cascades Ranger Station, 17 or so miles west of Crater Lake National Park, had received a report of an unknown gunman firing on a National Forest trailblazing crew, and he headed out that way to find the shooter, clear up any misunderstandings there may be, and possibly confiscate a rifle. But he didn't go alone. He requested police backup, and State Trooper Phil Loud responded to Ash's location, and the armed pair headed off to the area where the shots had been fired. The ranger and the trooper were pretty sure they knew the culprit, a true woodsman who lived mostly off the land, surviving off a meager living brought in from trapping game and prospecting for gold. Was he a hermit? Sure was. Ooh. He was 67-year-old George Baker Duncan, and he'd been living alone in his cabin for more than two decades. The report, received by Ranger Ash, stated the person who fired on the trail crew yelled after them as they fled that the men were stool pigeons, or police informants. Trooper Loud was familiar with Odd Duck George Duncan because he had arrested the man about a year before for possession of illegal game meat, which I assume means Duncan was hunting out of season. Do you know if they required tags back then? I don't know, but I but maybe. Oh yeah, he probably did not ever get a license to hunt. I just don't know if they did that back then or if that was like a new way to make money for the government. Yeah, I wonder wonder if they didn't act to that yet. It's a great question. Look it up. Gmail us. (laughs) Are you an expert at the knowledge of hunting? Yeah, I've never hunted. (laughs) I don't like the idea of doing it. (laughs) But you're going to hear about a whole lot of hunting in this one of animals and man. Oh. They left the ranger station around 3 p.m., 
and made their way northwest 10 aerial miles by my Google Maps thumb measurement estimate, following Elk Creek to its head, where a little town named Persist used to be, which is now a ghost town. And that'd be hard hiking for anyone not used to it, as the forest elevation ranges from 2,000 to nearly 6,900 feet. But Ash and Loud were well acquainted with the terrain, and so traversed it handily. The Umpqua National Forest is located where the wet weather of Oregon's west meets its more deserty southern environs, and it is lavished with old-growth forests featuring Douglas, grand and white firs, the mighty ponderosa pine, roaring waterfalls, deep blue high mountain lakes, and subalpine meadows that look like a blanket made by God and woven with flowers like the delicate fairy slipper, wild ginger and Pacific rhododendron, medusa head grass, various mosses, berry shrubs, and of course, the stunning cowpie lichen, which looks like a nasty old whitish turd that's been stepped on. You really painted us a picture there. I feel like I'm I'm there. There was a a message on Patreon. Someone complimented my descriptions of things. And nice. so I'm trying to focus on that a little more because I really appreciated that compliment. Person, if you're out there, thank you. Ranger Ash and Trooper Loud arrived at George Duncan's cabin around 5 p.m. It was tucked away off of desolate Buzzard Mine Road near the long-abandoned Al Serana Mine. As they approached the cabin from the other side of Swanson Creek, shots were fired from within, and the pair jumped for cover behind a fallen log. Loud radioed for backup, and State Trooper Charles Offenbacher soon arrived to help. Ranger Ash stayed behind cover as the troopers approached the cabin. Thirty yards from the cabin, they watched Duncan burst out of the cabin's only door and run along a huge log that lay at the shack's perimeter, like a short, makeshift wall. When he reached the end of the log, he fired at the officers, and with this volley, Trooper Phil Loud was shot between the eyes and died instantly. George Duncan then fled into the deep wilderness northeast of Medford and vanished, with his Winchester 30-30 rifle and his feet clad only in a pair of worn-out slippers and no socks. Later in the day, Loud's body was transferred for autopsy, and the bullet was extracted from his head as evidence. The recluse, trapper, and now killer was soon pursued by a 15-person posse consisting of sheriff's deputies, state police, and forest service agents. State and county officers searched the very rugged wooded area by truck, foot, and air for several days. As the search persisted, the Southern Oregon Conservation and Tree Farm Association, or SOKTVA, used their established radio network to stay in touch with investigators and to warn logging operations in the area to stay clear of the ever-shifting search for Duncan in which his pursuers called his elusiveness coyote-like, meaning quick and quiet, I'd imagine. George Baker Duncan was born in Clatsop, Oregon, in June 1885, to James William Duncan and Sarah Jane Cook. He was the second youngest of 12 children. My. Ouch! They just fly out by then. Duncan was a slight, scraggly-bearded man at 5'6 and 140 pounds, with cool blue eyes set in a balding head of gray hair. He had lived in his cabin, almost completely isolated, for 23 years, trapping in the winter for food and funds and working a gold claim in the warmer months. Philip B. Loud, originally from North Adams, Massachusetts, was born in October 1898. After surviving World War I as a yeoman on the battleship USS Arkansas, he returned to Oregon and found work managing a gas station before becoming a state forest patrolman and then a Jackson County Deputy Sheriff. In 1932, Loud became Oregon State Trooper Loud, and the following year, he and his partner Claudia Klum were married. 
Claudia Klum died in 1987, and she is buried in Siskiyou Memorial Park in Medford, right next to Philip. James Miller of Medford, Oregon, one of George Duncan's nephews, said Duncan had, quote, never been the same since he returned from Alaska in 1926. He began having spells. We could always talk him out of him, though. We thought several times about sending him to a psychologist, but he seemed to always snap out of it. And I think he was in Alaska prospecting or something. It wasn't really clear, but... Miller's wife, of course unnamed, recalled a strange visit they once paid to Duncan. The Millers had traveled from Medford to Duncan's place to give Uncle George some money to get by. Mrs. Miller said when they arrived, Duncan made them speak in whispers because, quote, the law might hear. She also told of a time George got into a brawl when another man sucker punched him, and his reaction was, quote, very rational in overpowering his assailant and making him promise to be good and that he would still be friends if his attacker would behave. When asked if Duncan may have set a series of fires that plagued the area a year previous, friend and nearby neighbor Mrs. Adolph Larson, no first name given, do broads even have first names? Not, Not back, back then. <laughs> said he could have done it while under the sway of one of his spells. She said he would never harm nature intentionally because he saw God in the streams, the trees, the flowers, the very land. They held him while he slept. It's interesting, like, when is the line between saying things like that being normal and then people being concerned for your mental health? You know? Yeah, with a with a reclusive person, it's hard to tell because I think I understand his desire to do that. The The whole time I was writing this, that's the, 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 the appeal of being a... Uh, all the way away from other people sounded pretty nice. Yeah, I, I think there is a fine line. Or I wonder if there was some, you know, I think maybe a trauma can make that happen too. Mm. retreat from the world at large. Yeah, but they never said anything like that. They didn't really go into uh, much of his mindset. Miller and Larson thought Duncan might go to a nearby property owned by Wes Miller, brother of Duncan's nephew, James, to replenish his ammunition. Rancher Wes Miller was known to store a large ammunition supply. From the day of the shooting, local pilots made surveillance passes over the area in their personal aircraft, weather permitting, and at least 20 men searched on the ground with the express order not to take unnecessary risks to capture Duncan. Thick brush and the mountain man's acumen with a gun would make any capture a possibly lethal encounter. Quote, Police pointed out that they are operating at a terrific disadvantage in the extremely rugged terrain. The area is covered with thick underbrush and big timber according to loggers and other persons well acquainted with the area. On June 30th, a report from Jackson County Sheriff's Deputy Earl Fickner detailed how Duncan concealed himself behind a log while two search team members broke for lunch, seated around a bonfire. And while the two briefly stepped away from the warmth, Duncan crawled nearer and stole the sandwich lunch they'd left. No. I mean, that's the kind of hermit I imagine. Creeping on campsites and taking food, you yeah, know? Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's wily. The deputy revealed that Duncan had also recently slipped back into his cabin to reclaim some of his food and supplies. The only sign of the elusive Duncan were foot tracks in the mud, which were soon washed away by heavy rains. Law enforcement officials stated that the search would continue, quote, until we get him, or until it was confirmed he'd escaped the area, which was 50 square miles of untamed northern Jackson County wilderness. They thought they could wait out old George, that a lack of food and shelter would drive him into their arms. But they were townsfolk, and he was of the woods. They were fools to underestimate him. George Duncan's cabin was destroyed by law enforcement personnel. It was deemed a, quote, natural fortress, 
and there was a danger he would return for supplies or maybe an armed siege if it was allowed to remain standing. Forest Service employees were kept from the area for safety reasons. After all, no one wanted an accidental cross-department shooting. Too much had already been lost. Quote, First of a series of steps to keep Duncan out in the open was started today when police began burning all lean-tos, shanties, and shacks in the Elk Creek region to prevent him from holing up in some protected area. State Police Captain Parsons has stated that if Duncan is able to kill a deer or obtain food in some other way, he can remain at large indefinitely. Six state police officers established a base camp inside the search area, a spot to recoup and resupply after lengthy search runs. The ad hoc unit was on assignment 24 hours a day, every day, tirelessly searching every cabin and trail in the area, quadrant by quadrant, yet early reports showed no new developments or sightings. By July 10th, the base camp unit had only been down from the camp twice since its inception. The same day, a reported sighting of George Duncan by a timber worker was investigated in the Whetstone Peak area, a dozen or so miles from Prospect, where George's cabin once was. This report was found to be an error. The article on this lead calls Duncan a, quote, woods-wise miner and trapper, which is a nicely understated description. On July 15th, police captain Paul Parsons said officers were still running down rumors, though all tips received to that point had amounted to nothing. Three days later, a group of, quote, Medford business and professional people pulled money and gathered a $250 reward for information that led to the capture of George Duncan. If Duncan was either caught by law enforcement or escaped capture for a year, the money would go to Trooper Loud's widow, Claudia Klum. And I think maybe she just could have had the money, right? Mm-hmm. To kind of get by after mm-hmm. her husband was shot in the yeah, face. Yeah, that would have been nice. Nice thought. But she did already have a first name, so. <laughs> she had enough. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Don't give her more. Jeez. Also, the reward fund grew to $300 through additional donations, which would be about $3,400 today. The manhunt for George Duncan felt as though it had spiraled out of control when on July 19th, the freshly slain bodies of two men from out of town, Albert Jones and Charles Colhane, were found on a road near Crater Lake. This is a case I covered in episode 93, A Million Other Little Lies, but I'll summarize it here. This crime's proximity to Trooper Phil Loud's shooting made Duncan a prime suspect instantly. He'd already killed one person with a bullet to the head, so why not two more? Albert Jones and Patrick Colhane were in Oregon for business. Both were high-ranking sales executives at General Motors, and they decided to go fishing that afternoon with the clients they'd worked with that morning. The client, his son, and another man drove to meet Jones and Colhane at a fishing cabin on Union Creek. A few miles up Highway 62, the group pulled over when they spotted the businessman's Pontiac parked on the side of the road. They figured the out-of-towners had wandered off sightseeing in the woods off of the road, but they began to suspect something bad had happened when their wait stretched to 45 minutes. The strangeness was reported to the nearest ranger station, and several park rangers and a forest trail crew searched the woods until the sun went down. Their bodies were not found until nearly 48 hours after they disappeared. Jones and Colhane had been driven a quarter mile south of the highway and shot in their heads in a wooded area. Police at first believed Jones and Colhane stepped out of their vehicle to take in the view, and Duncan ambushed the men and shot them, believing they were the authorities. He was concerned with stool pigeons, after all. But they soon changed their tune after an examination of the double homicide crime scene pointed to another party killing the pair. 
Jones and Colhane were executed and robbed of valuables. Duncan just didn't quite fit as the killer. The Crater Lake double murder lay open for 42 years when one day Alice Sim, victim Albert Jones' maternal granddaughter, woke up with a need to find his murderers. Alice's own investigation into the crime led her to the Mountain Murder Mob, a vicious and prolific band of thieves thought to be responsible for several other murders. She believes the heads of that gang, Jack Santo and Emmett Perkins, had killed the businessmen at Crater Lake, but no one was ever definitively tied to the crimes. Santo and Perkins were later executed in the gas chamber at San Quentin Prison for the savage murder of a widow in Burbank, California. Police Captain Parsons said that after the Crater Lake double murder and the FBI's involvement, they had enough manpower to intensify the search for Duncan. Even though he was not the guy who killed Colhane and Jones, he still needed to answer for the crimes he'd committed at his shack nearly a month before. From July 27th through the 29th, five members of the police base camp unit were accompanied by an army-trained canine doggy, who I am going to name Mr. Beefers, as they combed <laughs> through three quadrants of rough terrain, knowing they may be walking into a killing field. Duncan could box them in and hit them at range with his Winchester. They found no sign of the woodsman, saying they were stumped as to how Duncan could be traversing the area unseen, and kind of amazed he was surviving on nothing but what trapping and foraging could provide. I mean, he's out there for 20 years. He's going to know how to hide. Mm -hmm. And then he's probably had terrible winters where there was not much to eat. So I wouldn't be surprised by that. Mm -hmm. Quote, he knows every cabin and trail in the area, and the needle in a haystack search is complicated by his woods wisdom and ability to move around unhindered. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom or the motherly figure in your life? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send your recipient a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about, for example, your mom's life or any custom questions that you want to ask. And then she can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories forever. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Obviously, we love anything surrounding storytelling. It's what we do. So to be able to gift this to my mom, to not only hear her stories, but the stories of my grandparents and other family members, it will create a cherished gift for all of us to enjoy. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN for 10% off today. Four fires were reported along Elk Creek on July 31st. This is the same location as George Duncan's cabin and the site of Trooper Loud's death. These fires merged into one biggie, 
a 40-acre blaze that was soon brought under control. Oh, dear. The year before, George was questioned about a series of fires set in the same area, and he denied any knowledge of them besides the flames and smoke. Sunday, August 3rd, State Police Captain Parsons relayed to journalists that footprints, remnants of jerky, and an arranged pile of ferns and moss, undoubtedly used by Duncan as a bed, was found where a campfire of Duncan's had spread out of control. Now that's surprising. Why would there be remnants of jerky? Wouldn't you eat at all? Yeah. Uh, I wonder if the if the fire got out of control and he had to flee. Um. I think that's what it was. I don't think he ever spoke to it. I think he just said he, he didn't do it, but he was probably an mm. accident. That jerky's precious gold. Mm-hmm. The fire was contained the same day it started, and Parsons believed Duncan was forced to flee and leave his meager supplies as the flames spread. At some point, somebody said, maybe we need a woodsman of our own to catch this slippery George Duncan. Mm. Now there's an idea. They needed an expert with guns, with knives, with his bare hands, someone that could ignore pain and weather and live off the land and to eat things that would make a billy goat puke. Are they calling Keith Rowney? (laughs) That's actually from Rambo First Blood, that quote. That man was newly appointed special officer Russell Slim Ma. He was suggested to Fode Maison, superintendent of the state police, by Gene Halley, the ex-deputy warden of the Oregon State Penitentiary, where Slim worked as a guard. And I'm not going to say Slim was a great guy. He may have, in fact, been garbage, as I did find a divorce complaint from the circuit court in Salem, uh, in which Ma's wife alleged cruel and inhuman treatment. On August 19th, George Duncan took a huge risk, emerging from the woods to knock on his nephew Wes Miller's door. He asked Wes for food, ammo, and clothing. Wes provided him with the clothes and food and said he had no spare ammo, but that he would get some and hide it in a nearby grain bin. George also asked to swap rifles with Wes, but he refused, telling him maybe a lie that police had already inventoried his guns and he didn't want them to know they'd had contact. That was a smart lie. Yeah. Sometime after Duncan left the cabin, Wes went to the nearest ranch to get a ride to a nearby home that had a two-way radio. Whomever he spoke to at the ranch told him that wouldn't be necessary because Special Officer Ma was already there, undercover, posing as a trapper. After hearing Wes Miller's story, Slim had since staked out his cabin and the surrounding area 24-7. Luckily, he was allowed to bunk inside when night fell and he was near the cabin. And Slim was working injured. Just three days before he was hired in the search for Duncan, he was in a car accident north in Salem, in which his truck turned over and his left arm was fractured. Damn. He was a tough guy. But 44-year-old Slim was a grizzled old bastard who merely rubbed some dirt on it and got back to work. Slim had a map, a two-person tent, a sleeping bag, a waterproof blanket, and a rifle. His first night on the hunt was August 26th, and he was chilling and making 104 flapjacks when his little scruffy unnamed dog, that I am naming Cornmeal, started growling (laughs) and doing little woofs. So Slim grabbed his rifle and killed the bear that was sneaking up to his camp. And then he had a bunch of meat to eat with those 104 flapjacks. Why were there 104 flapjacks? I don't know. I'm assuming it was his first night and he's like, I don't know when I'll be able to cook again, maybe. Oh, and you just eat it as you go. Yeah. I thought you just added that for some embellishment. That was real. That is a quote (laughs) from an article that- That would uh, take a long time. An interview with Slim. Yeah. How big were they? Were they like medallion size? They got to be little silver dollars or something. That's amazing. That's a lot of pancakes. I really thought you were just adding some dramatic (laughs) flair there. 
know, that's one of those things that when I'm doing like my last bits of research, I'm so glad that I do you find little nuggets. Because I find these stupid little things. Yeah. Especially from back then, the things they wrote are mm-hmm. so funny. Flapjacks, baby. He spent the next four days tracking Duncan through a 12 square mile area, finding six spots where the wanted man had slept. He also found several places where Duncan had, quote, jerked the meat. <gasps> <laughs> You know, I think it's so impressive that people can tr- do tracking. Like, I don't know if I would tell. Like, I do know when you see, like, grass bent, something heavy was sitting there. But that's pretty impressive to me. Yeah, to be able to follow a trail of someone that isn't in front of you. And to find yeah. that many locations where he slept. Like, he's close behind him, I would guess. Yeah, I think he was always on his on his tail. But, but Duncan was just too far ahead. And I think... Somehow, just incredibly fast when it came to to traversing the woods. But also, that kind of scares me, and I could see why his wife wanted a divorce. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'll find you. (laughs) Yeah. Slim said Duncan would build his fire on a creek bank against a moss-covered log, then peel the moss and tent it over the flames to filter the smoke through the dampness, making it impossible to see from 50 yards away. Does that work? Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Then, I was just thinking that the way to catch him would be to wait for nighttime when you can see smoke. But if that works, there goes my theory. Yeah, he was good. <laughs> On the night of August 30th, Slim tracked Duncan to Bitterlick Ridge near Persist, the area where Duncan's cabin once stood. Slim went back to his undercover ranch tent home and called state police captain Parsons to ask if he could move camp from the ranch to the abandoned Al Sirana mine, about a mile south of Duncan's cabin. Slim got the okay and began camping on the hillside of the mine the next day. He did this in lieu of using the site's cabin so as not to tip Duncan off that someone was staying out that way. Slim went back to the Bitterlick area over the next three days, and on the third night, September 3rd, he trailed George Duncan's footprints back to Swanson Creek, but lost him from that point. The next day, Slim searched five old mine tunnels a half mile from Swanson Creek, but found nothing. The day after, he tracked George to a nearby homestead where he found that Duncan was already gone, but he had broken in by smashing a window and had stolen several cans of fruit and a shovel. I wonder what he's using the shovel for. Yeah, I don't think they ever get into that. Maybe some trenches a, to like, like hide in. What do you call it? A <laughs> oh, latrine. Like a little scat hole. Mm-hmm. Slim lost his quarry the next day, but he found that Duncan had, quote, shot a beaver and eaten all of it but the entrails, hide, and toenails. On the 8th, Duncan moved out of the Bitterlick area because the temperature had dropped and snow was falling. Slim trailed him for two days, and on the 10th, moving back toward the Persist area, he saw Duncan for the first time. The fugitive mountain man was 2,000 feet away, passing through an opening in the trees and being quickly swallowed up again in the green vastness. I can literally see this as if it's a movie. Like, how exciting that would be. Oh, yeah, to finally see the guy after, yeah. After all this 10 time. days, you're yeah. like, oh, my God. And, and just 10 days of hard living, too. I don't know how. Oh, well, he loved it, I guess. Slim must have just loved not being with his <laughs> wife. She probably loved it, too, in that way. Yeah. Slim started, quote, lying in on those shells or waiting to shoot Duncan when he showed up to grab them on the morning of September 11th. These are the ones Wes Miller said he would get for his uncle, George Duncan, and deliver to a grain bin nearby. Instead, Slim loaded a box of cartridges with the wrong caliber round for George's rifle Ouch. and waited for him to show up. He did this all day, every day for a week until September 18th. 
Wes left his cabin early that morning and met with Duncan at a bar near Miller's cabin. It was a pre-planned meeting they'd established on his last visit. The old trapper was living on almost nothing and needed supplies. He gave his nephew some bear meat, and Wes took the Winchester rifle, probably saying, let me get that for you, it's heavy, as they headed toward the cabin to grab the cartridges. Watching them near the cabin, Officer Slim stepped from behind some bushes, announcing that Duncan was under arrest. And George moved like he was going to run, but stopped when Slim commanded him to halt, and he saw that Wes had his own rifle pointed at him. George Duncan asked Slim if he was a state policeman, and when he said yes, the trapper, realizing he'd been trapped, said, well, I guess that's it. After the arrest, Duncan admitted only to firing a shot in the direction of Trooper Phil Loud and the other officers in an attempt to scare the men away. He claimed he didn't know the trooper had been killed, but he figured, quote, it was serious due to the scope and extent of the search. State Police Captain Paul Parsons said Duncan was in good condition and had a long white beard. That's nice, Paul. Good job. George Duncan was held in the Jackson County Jail, where he was allowed to take his first hot bath in three months. His jailers said Duncan gave them no trouble and occupied the cell by sitting within it quietly. His only complaint was an injured leg, which was never fully detailed, but was probably twisted while hunting down the deer, the two bears, or the pair of beavers he fed on those three wild months. One of those beavers was tragically lost after being shot. It sank into a lake, never to be gummed on by George Duncan. Slim said at the time of his arrest, Duncan had only one shot left in his rifle, and Duncan said he'd begun the months-long evasion of authorities with only seven cartridges. Wow. So, one in the rifle, and we'll say one each for the animals he hunted while on the run. He was a good shot. That's six. Yeah. And that means he maybe missed one shot. Wow. Slim assessed Duncan's survival and evasion skills, calling him, quote, one of the best woodsmen I've ever seen. Slim had a list of 13 places where Duncan had camped over the months. In a photo taken after his capture, George Duncan is seen sitting in a wooden chair with a cushioned seat. He is handcuffed and holding a lit cigarette between fingers nearly blackened with dirt. He looks to have a self-fashioned walking stick propped against the chair under his arm. Duncan is sickly thin and frail. He is absolutely swimming in a rumpled button-down shirt, and his eyes, clear and wary, are cast up and to his right. He appears to be listening to someone talk. The Jackson County District Attorney reported that Duncan told officers repeatedly that he was a dead shot, unaccustomed to missing what he fired at, and often fed himself for an entire year, hunting with the rifle and only going through one box of shells, likely 20 to 50 cartridges. Too bad he was a murderer. They could have had him, like, write a book or something. Duncan's rules for woods livings? Yeah, yeah. seriously. It, it feels like it was an accident, but... Oh, what yeah. drives you to get to that point? You but know? when you're also saying, oh, it must have been bad with all the people you had chasing me. Yeah. And you're not going, hey, guys, why are you chasing me? Yeah, and then he, he knew. He knew. Yeah. The only thing he knew was to, to retreat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Russell Slim Ma reported that George Duncan had never been in the area at Crater Lake, either during or after the double murder of Albert Jones and Charles Culhane. Slim was told it was the longest manhunt in the state since 1902, and when he took the job, he was told he had a 50-50 chance of surviving the hunt. Dang. He was interviewed for Salem's Capital Journal newspaper, and a version of his story later appeared in issues of both Official Detective Magazine and Crime Detective Magazine. Moss said, quote, I was lucky to get out alive myself, for twice he drew a bead on me, and didn't shoot because his ammunition was getting low. That was before I ever saw him. 
He told me about it after the arrest. I feel like they'd be good friends in another life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Duncan denied this claim, calling it a pipe dream, adding that he was looking forward to reading Slim's story in those magazines, saying it should be interesting fiction. (laughs) A few days after the capture of George Duncan, Russell, Slim, Ma joined the search for two prisoners who escaped from the Oregon State Penitentiary back in June, nine days before the hunt for George Duncan began. Gerald Maycomer and Charles Crozier broke out by hiding in the back of a dump truck, leaving the prison after delivery. The search, headed by Slim and his posse of prison guards, captured Crozier after two weeks of tracking. Maycomer made it a further six weeks on the lam before finally being wrangled by Slim and company. The $300 reward offered for assistance in the capture of George Duncan ended up going to his nephew, Wes Miller, who was integral to the arrest. For his hard work, Slim received a citation of merit from the Oregon State Police, as well as a wristwatch. This was done during a, quote, radio detective radio broadcast on KSLM Salem by H.G. Mason, the state police superintendent. In court for his arraignment on Friday, September 22, 1952, Duncan showed up clean-shaven, except for a trimmed mustache. Circuit Court Judge H.K. Hanna asked Duncan how he pleaded, and George, slight and scrubbed clean and limping, answered emotionlessly, quote, I plead guilty to second-degree murder, for which he received a life sentence. After sentencing, Duncan said he'd never known hunger the way he felt it now. No matter how much he ate, he could hardly stand the weight between meals. As he fled after the shooting back in June, his ankle was sliced open, but he treated the wound with tree resin, and it healed cleanly. The trapper said he returned to his cabin the day after the shooting to retrieve his waterproof Mackinac boots and gather a frying pan, flour, salt pork, and sugar. But in his rush to get and go, he forgot to grab a knife, eventually using a tin can lid as a blade to cut the meats, which was a necessity, as Duncan had only three teeth. He lived off of unripe hazelnuts for eight days before coming face to face with a bear as he climbed a ledge foraging. George took the bear down with one shot, cooked the kidneys and liver, then set about slicing himself some bear steaks. George Duncan, who lived about as free as anyone I've heard of before the killing of state trooper Phil Loud, was delivered to Oregon State Penitentiary on Thursday, October 2nd, 1952. Another case where a different approach may have completely changed the tragic course of events. An armed response for a possibly mentally ill or delusional person only seemed to have inflamed Duncan's reaction in response a bullet between the eyes for Phil Loud. Duncan was paroled in 1967 and died in 1967, on February 6th, at the Oregon State Hospital in Salem. He was 81, and I imagine not in the best of health, after years of rugged living and nearly 15 years in prison. Looking back on it, how little ammunition he used, he had to have been aiming for him. Hmm. Like if he He's really never a missed shot. a shot, yeah. like he had to be. Yeah, and, and it was it was a uh, I mean it was between like in his forehead, right? Like, right. Kind like of, that like seems a, purposeful. A perfect target shot, yeah. So yeah, I, I I think that he may have had some mental I don't know delusion, thinking that people were coming after him or something. But I also think that he definitely aimed and and, mm. and meant to shoot him in the head. Yeah. yeah, that's the end of the story. Wow, so, that is uh, first of all, I can't believe I've never heard that. That's insane. <laughs> like, yeah. Wow. It was just like sort of a side note uh, or a footnote in the, the the case I did about the Crater Lake double murder. They just mentioned him for one second, George Duncan. They've been searching for him and it's been a months long thing. And that was like, I don't know, a year ago or whatever. Yeah. And yeah, just a fascinating story. It is. Um, and yeah. so vivid. Like, I I would love to watch this. Oh, 
Wow. And like a reenactment, you know? Yeah, it's just, I, I just, yeah. I, I've always been in love with manhunts. Yeah. The, what, the logistics of that and like how hard that, that sort of searching is. I've always been really enamored by that. And it's too bad that he was a murderer because he's otherwise a very fascinating person, just like Slim is a fascinating person. Yeah. Who yeah, also might have been a piece of shit. He could have like given them tips on stuff. He could have trained them on mm. certain terrain or something. But I imagine you don't become like that without some sort of history. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if there was a tragedy. I just, yeah, I don't know. Or if, you know, I, I mean, I thought just simply maybe he was with somebody like uh, a partner. And maybe that person died or something. Yeah, like some I, people I'd love just, to know more yeah. about him and his inner monologue. Yeah. And wow, that was yeah. I found intense. I found a lot about him, but but not much deep uh, mm. historical stuff about him, his history. So if anyone knows about him, that would be great to hear. Let me know. <laughs> there's just <laughs> there's he's just a, yeah. It was an interesting that area is just there's just so many interesting things that have happened there and tragic things and yeah. yeah. It's uh, that Wizard Island really pulls people to it. Like your mom. She <laughs> squirted you out. <laughs> the only thing I wish they had is a room that you could use for like lactation exercise videos or stretching i'm talking to a hot sheriff tomorrow hello oh he's got those short short hair on the sides and a little bit longer on top he's got no hair but yeah oh yeah hello he's bald with a beard <laughs> oh baby oh he does sound hot <laughs> Woo! i gotta meet this this uh hunk sheriffs oh <laughs> mine's gonna become fused if i don't start using it soon <laughs> <laughs> and regrows over itself. Oh, God. My vagina will become like the land in The Last of Us, overgrown and shut down. Mm. Reclaimed Pedro. by nature. <laughs> yes, reclaimed by nature. Back to how God Pedro intended. could come help me peel back the layers. I bet he could. All of us. <laughs> I, I love him so much. We will save a seat for you on one of our laps. I'm getting naked right now. <laughs> I would love to live in an area where it's a constant sunset. There are places like that. Like constantly twilight? It's no oh, like a like a Bella. kind of, but a little more just an orangey sunset. Wouldn't that feel awful? I think I would love it. That's one of my favorite times of day. Huh. Hmm. Can't eat nothing but Pop-Tarts all the time. You're going to get <laughs> sick of those Pop-Tarts, baby. Emily, what is your time of birth? My mom said, oh, it was 10.35 a.m. And I go, are you got to be shitting me? Because that's my favorite hour of the day is 10 a.m. <gasps> I am at my most productive from 10 to 11. That's amazing. I love it. I love it. I love it. Like if I didn't have a job, I know that I'd be at the gym at 10 a.m. Like, I'm sorry. Can we go back though? You didn't know when you were born until like recently? Yeah, because my mom, like all my birth stuff got destroyed by water years ago. So I don't have like my birth, my original birth certificate that had the time mm. on it, the one they write. Witness protection. No, I, I have a birth certificate. It just doesn't put your time of birth on it. It's the one they write oh, you at the oh. hospital. The like, how interesting. I've always known mine. Well, I That's know so my funny. daughter's, so she knows hers because yeah. I have a baby book. I don't have that kind of stuff Yeah, because it was all destroyed. Mm. So yeah, my mom blew my mind with that because I'm, I yeah, love sunset. I think sunset, there's something to it. That hour is like, I am my best self at 10, 10 to 11. Josh, do you know what time you were born or is that? Um, it was, I think, mm, between, I think like two or three in the morning. That seems mm. legitimate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's usually when you're up watching movies. 
I mean, I do like that time of night. Yeah, I guess that's, yeah, that's when I live. Now I wonder if everyone loves that hour of that they're birthed in. Like, is that? I think there's, I was born at, I was born at three o'clock on the dot and I love. In the day? I love the, yeah, I love early afternoon. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So there you go. Wow. uh, We just discovered something. I think there's something to it. You know, I think I love that time of the day, early, early, early morning or late, late, late night. And I don't like any other time of day. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather be dead every other I time. I wish every day. hour was that hour. <laughs> I don't want to be awake right now. I really don't. <laughs> oh, stop it. We're a joy to be with. Yeah. You better enjoy it why. while it lasts. Oh, joy my God. We're bound to turn on you well, at some at point. Oh, my God. What? <laughs> Everyone does. What have, I been, what have I been signed up for? <laughs> Betraying me. Oh, you didn't ah. know what I had planned? Oh, shit. I'm sorry. Yeah, I guess I'm only needed because you guys don't want to do it. <laughs> no, that's not true either. I know, we genuinely I know. like you. That's oh, why you're I'm just saying if I'm going to risk going to jail, it's not going to be for him. Yeah, that's very true. You're the, one of the last people I'd kill. I've got. That's very nice, Em. Thank you. You're <laughs> pretty far down the list. <laughs> <laughs> that that if, someone, if someone approached me and said, I'm going to kill you and your whole family unless you kill somebody, I'd be like, I got the person. Hold on. I've definitely had a thought where I'm like, you know, it would be really nice if like there was a disaster and they were caught in it. <laughs> I've definitely had moments like that. Or you might have to avenge us. Yeah. Okay. okay so okay. just don't forget that you might have to do that. Y'all, yeah. if somebody, if something happens to you, I am on that case. He's you not he really is? redhead. He's like that translucent. He's like Murdoch. Oh, Murdoch. Oh, red. yeah. Yeah. It's like he should have been redhead, he's but he's like blonde that. instead. <laughs> he is hot like that. God. <laughs> he's as good looking A and pink sexy. face. Did you like that t-shirt I sent you? Oh, my God. That was so funny. <laughs> what was it? It, was, it, said, it was a yellow shirt and it said, don't trust no backwoods southern lawyer. And it was a picture of him. <laughs> <laughs> Who played Mama, uh, the comedian? Oh, shit. Mama? Mama's family. Oh, um, Vicky Lawrence? Yeah, because she, that's her song. Wow. Did you hear me pull that in half that a was, second? That was really impressive. I'm not shocked, though, Josh. You do this yeah. often. You're like a savant for that kind of stuff. Reba's Lights Went Out in Georgia oh, is a remake oh. of Vicky Lawrence, who had a hit. Oh, with that's it. right. I actually just but learned hers that, is not as good. that Vicky Lawrence did that original version. I had yeah. no clue because I only know the song as a reference in Reservoir Dogs. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never okay. heard it anything so i well, just know but i didn't know it was honey her. i will sing it for you <laughs> at will. next karaoke and it'll be night. great that's the night that the lights went out in georgia ha, 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 ha. but reba really made it come to life reba is a fucking storytelling genius and add a little garthy garth in there i like him too for his stories chris gaines <laughs> that's the, the one true CD story i did not buy okay i did not buy then that you're one. not a real fan had only been down from the camp twice since it's had only been down from the camp twice since it's. Uh... <sighs> Get it out. Get out, baby. Get it out. <laughs> the base camp unit had only been down from the camp twice since its inception. Does that sound okay? I would do it one more time. The base camp unit had only been down twice from the. <laughs> <Or> maybe again. <laughs> one more. <laughs> Sorry. Twice since it's. <laughs> it's so hard. Since it's it's since that is it's hard. inception. There you go. Also, in it, sorry, my boner got it really. It's <laughs> all centered on like Crater Lake too. Wow, must be a supernatural place. I mean, it looks like one. It's a place called Wizard Island, for God's sake. I was born there. 
That would not be surprising. <laughs> my mom actually had me on Wizard Island at, th- at what I say, 10.35 a.m. That's going on my dating profile. <laughs> or on Wizard Island. <laughs> what, what is the two truths and a lie? That will be my lie. That's my nickname. <laughs> Sorry. Bitter, bitter lick ridge. It's all right. It's nice. It's a little. It's a little bitter. <laughs> it's a these names. Who named them? That's so bunch funny. Of pervs. Bunch bitter of meat jerking pervs. That should be the name. To the abandoned El Saran. To the abandoned Al Saran. Oh! No. <laughs> the next day, uh, Slim got the okay and began camping on the. <laughs> You're doing so good. Get click, back on it. Click. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Click, click. <laughs> the two bears or the pair of beavers. He... <laughs> pair of bitter beavers. I do have the word. I have giggle in parentheses right here. I have beavers. <laughs> Should that be our mascot, the bitter lick beaver? Absolutely. One thousand percent. Someone yes. please, please I'm... paint that. Draw for us. something for us to put on a shirt. Yeah. I'm more than my beaver. <laughs> <laughs> Bitter lick next time. I'll lick a bitter. Let me read that again. That was so weird. You sounded like Batman just now. (laughs) Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>